You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Live Different Podcast. I am your host, Matt Wilson, and today I am here with Dr. Sherrod Paul. He is the author of the new book, The Genetics of Health, Understand Your Genes for Better Health. I'm really excited because this is a topic that I've looked into extensively myself, uh, and I know a lot of our podcast listeners have heard a good amount about me doing things like going on to 23andMe.com and spitting in a small tube and getting my uh, genetic profile back and looking into things uh, that are are very important to me, uh, susceptibility to disease and how we can uh, design our lifestyles around the science that we know that, uh, you know, with our, with our genes. So I'm really excited to get into this conversation. Dr. Paul, thank you for joining us. Well, my pleasure. Good morning. And thank you. Thank you. You are uh, based in New Zealand. It sounds like you have lived across the world. I believe yes, that yeah. you were born in England, uh, spent some time in India, and then went to Auckland, was it, to university? That's right, yeah. Yes. Excellent. Well, uh, yeah, thank you for, for waking up on your Saturday morning as it's Friday afternoon here. Uh, yeah, here in the United States. Uh, yes, yeah, so I wanted to really just dive into what people can, can understand about their own health, uh, especially as it comes to their line of genetics. I know most people listening right now are probably thinking, okay, uh, I have a family history of X, Y, and Z. Uh, it could be, you know, I, I've mentioned several times on the podcast for me personally, uh, my grandfather on my mother's side has Alzheimer's. Uh, my dad has uh, Parkinson's. Actually, uh, I usually just say Parkinson's, but it's a, a more rare disease called PSP. Uh, Parasupranuclear palsy, uh, I believe it, it stands for. If I, if I got that right, we just usually refer to it as PSP, but it's very similar to, to Parkinson's. Um, and these are things, actually, I, I logged on to 23andMe.com, a genetic testing site, and I found out uh, just today they had a new report available about macular degeneration. And I found out that I was a little bit more susceptible to uh, going blind as my late grandmother did. So a lot of interesting things here and a lot to learn about uh, how we can then take action in our own lives to be able to prevent these things. So uh, Dr. Paul, could you give us a little bit of an overview of, of what people can really learn uh you know about their about their genetics and what they can do yeah so the first thing is um one thing i've often said is uh, we must look at genes are our blueprint but they're not our destiny so we really are in control um so genes basically just make proteins so depending on our lifestyles or actions um they may make good proteins or bad yes sometimes we have a genetic predisposition to have some genes which fundamentally make some uh, negative proteins. Uh, so, so that's the first thing is that, you know, you know, genes are just a blueprint, they're not a destiny. The second issue is that um, 
like I talk about in the book, The Genetics of Health, I'm really into testing for um, wellness rather than illness because, as we know, stress is a major part of our lives and also stress has major health implications. So in my view, um, until there's something is definitely curable, there's no point testing for things which we don't have cures for, like, you know, for example, you know, you could take Alzheimer's or macular degeneration into that. So, so, so in my view, um, I tend to um, look at it that what can we do to optimize our eating and exercise to live happier, healthier, fitter. So that's one. And the second point is that everything in life, every disease or anything is a combination of our genes and our environment. So genes aside, the environment includes our external environment, which is, you know, our climate and pollution and things like that. To some degree, we have less control over it because we're often not the decision makers. But then it comes to our internal environment, which is, of course, our bodies and what we put inside it. And those are the things we are in control of. So what I focus on is our differences uh, with regard to what our bodies are suited to and how we can optimize our internal environment. Okay, and that, that makes a lot of sense. Now, do you suggest that everyone go to one of these sites uh, and get a genetics test so that they can see uh, what they may be pre predisposed to? Or are you, are you saying, okay, look, you might know you have some things in your family, but we're just going to focus on making sure that you live an optimal lifestyle? Yeah. Um, uh, if I was a good businessman, I'd say everybody goes to my site, sharadpaul.com, and does my own gene test I've developed. <laughs> but that aside, uh, truth be told, I think we can be intuitive about certain things. But yes, I'm not a great fan of testing for illness unless they're specifically what we can do. So I really, I focus on, in the in our testing, we don't do the whole genome sequencing like 23andMe and others, they do the whole lot. We basically do diet and exercise. So how effectively it's how can you exercise and how can you eat for your gene type? But taking back that question a bit, does everybody need a test? Not necessarily so, but there's some gen generalities, as you would have noted from the book, that we can do. You know, we can follow as close to, um, uh, you know, a blue zone, which we were just briefly uh, talking about off air kind of a diet. We can, you know, exercise more. Movement is so important. Flexibility. So there are many specific things we can do to optimize health. But if you wanted to take it to the next level and fine-tune it, um, then, yes, definitely taking one of these tests is helpful. Um, like, you know, it will tell you things like I tested myself. You know, you can look at things like coffee and vitamin C and vitamin D and what kind of exercises are best for you and things like that. Okay, great. Well, I think that those three places would be a great uh, a great place to start. Of course, everyone loves coffee, and that's interesting to to so many people. But also vitamin D, which is geez, uh, just incredibly important that everyone be receiving uh, sunshine. And you're also a skincare expert, so I'm curious where you stand exactly uh, on that issue. And then, of course, you know, just just diving into to dive. Uh, diet and exercise maybe we should start maybe we should start there and diet and exercise and uh, could you explain a little bit as to what your book goes into uh, 
and how your genes can play a role into uh, different types of diet and exercise that people should pursue? Yeah, so basically I came on this journey um, from my work in skin, like you pointed out, and it's really because um, the two things, one thing we know is you cannot have bad health and good skin, so it just skin reflects what's going on inside. So everybody was wanting to look younger, have better skin, asking about anti-aging stuff, and really the secret to all that is fundamentally making sure that your internal environment is very, is optimal. So that's one. And, and the second thing is when we're talking about skin diseases like dangerous skin cancers, for example, the first thing, if somebody's got an advanced melanoma, you know, which has spread, the first thing we do is test their gene type to see if certain medications would help them or not. So what I thought is, you know, how come when it comes to illness, we always test um, genetics um, straight away, but we don't do it for wellness. And, and so that really took me on this journey. The second step is like when we were talking about coffee or caffeine, um, we in medicine, you know, we do use caffeine in certain medications. We use it in pain relief, we use it for asthma, added on with other medications. And so it's really a, a stimulant, a drug. And sometimes you'd read a report in a paper which will say, you know, coffee is very good for you if you have, a, in fact, I just saw one yesterday which said, I was trying to, it was in a British newspaper and it said drinking three cups of coffee a day will reduce your risk of heart disease. And um, it was just a blanket statement on the headline and I actually wanted to actually uh, write and say no, but it actually depends on your gene type. So, so the point is every day we read reports about coffee or different uh, food source being good or bad for you. So people get confused because you can also get a report which says coffee increases your risk of heart disease. And so people think, is it good? Is it bad? And that's where genetics can help. So, for example, 50% of the population of the world, are, um, because we've done this study roughly in both Asia and in, um, you know, Western populations. So it's ballpark 50% are fast metabolizers of caffeine and 50% are slow. So if you're a fast metabolizer, actually caffeine is good for you and it's quite beneficial. But if you're a slow metabolizer and you exceed um, 200 milligrams of caffeine a day, ballpark Turkish coffee is 150, a double shot espresso is about 150, 160, single shot is 80 milligrams of caffeine. Then, so if you exceed 200, you could actually increase your risk of heart disease. You could actually also damage kidneys and things like that. So, so you really need to make sure that you don't drink more than a cup of coffee a day. So you can sort of tailor your diet based on your own gene type. Um, the second one, really good example I'd give you is, say, um, vitamin C, because this is genetically very interesting gene um, because from an evolutionary point of view, this has a use it or lose it thing. So, for example, um, creatures like, you know, human beings, chimpanzees, gorillas, bats, all these creatures, we eat a lot of vitamin C, like I pointed out in the book, citrus fruit. So we actually cannot produce um, citrus fruit, I mean, uh, vitamin C. We do uh, produce a little bit in the womb when we're babies, but not after birth. But if you look at other creatures, like even sheep and uh, newts and things like that, they produce their own vitamin C. But here's what's interesting. One in five humans have a gene which 
doesn't metabolize vitamin C properly. So what it means is if you don't double your intake or eat much more than the recommended, as simple as eating another orange a day, then per year your waist circumference went up a tiny bit, your blood pressure went up very small. It's actually very gradual that you don't notice it. But if you look at your photo from when you're 20 to your 40 and you ballooned out and you find that you've developed either pre-diabetes or heart disease or something like that, then you would be a candidate for this gene. So what we found is we the studies which were published in the American Medical Association Journal looked at people from in America. They looked at, um, I think it was a Canadian study. They also looked at people, separate study in Asia, and one in five people carry this gene. So what it means is medicine only picks these people up when you've had a heart disease or diabetes or something when they're 50. So in my view, what's wrong in eating an orange a day and keeping the doctor away earlier? And this is where the beauty of um, personalized gene testing for wellness comes in. Okay, that's that's very interesting. Uh, Dr. Paul, one of the things that I think about personally quite a bit, especially when it comes to my genetics, is where where my genes come from in the world. So I am... Caucasian male, 32 years old, uh, well, 32 next week, but uh, 32, 32 years old, and most of my genetic testing uh, implies that I'm uh, Northern European descent. Uh, actually, I found out very interesting in my, uh, when I got the genetics testing back, I was 99.9% uh, white, I believe, as they as they call it. But yes. I had a 0.1% from uh, Eastern Africa, which I thought was fascinating. Uh, but they, they said I may have had a third, fourth or fifth generation great grandparent uh, from Africa, which I thought was, was really cool. Uh, and of course, that's just a, an aside that I'm sharing. But in the uh, ancestral health community, people who think, uh, you know, where, where the word paleo comes from. Uh, the theory is that because I'm more Northern European, where the days would be shorter, the seasons would be a lot tougher, we might not get as much fruit if I was living uh, not in Costa Rica, but probably where I was designed to live uh, up more uh, in, in Northern Europe, where uh, we might eat more fatty fish and eat more a, a little bit more protein and but less carbohydrates we'd be eating less fruit off the trees there wouldn't be bananas growing and and all of that um, do you do you buy into these types of, of ancestral health theories um, I buy into the ancestral genetics but not the ancestral health theories and let me explain that why is that basically what we must remember is all of us have some African um, grandparents, I mean, it just means how many generations back you want to go because we know that modern human beings pretty much migrated out of Africa. Yes. There's some theories to say. If you, so, so the fact is that's the reason you have it and I would have it and everybody would have a little bit of African descent. It just depends on east or um, west or north, doesn't really matter. The point is people migrated out of Africa into Europe and what happened is, so then really what happened, and this is something I've spoken in a, a TED talk called the myth of race and all human skin colors really develop because of migration and change in diets. So, so really, when you look at skin color evolution, so 
to explain. So when people went into Europe, the skin lightened because there was not enough sun, so people needed vitamin D. But in Africa, um, the this process had happened over a long period of time. So Africans actually had a high level of pre-vitamin D, which makes them naturally good athletes. But in Europe, what happened over time, um, people needed um, to get more sunlight and there was not enough sun for six months of the year. So basically the skin became paler and paler and trying to absorb um, vitamin D, otherwise you develop rickets. But when people migrated over to Asia, what happened is the skin darkened to preserve folic acid and we need folic acid to reproduce and have babies. And so basically that's why um, Asian skin again darkened and that's one of the reasons why Asia has a very large population as well. So, but where does this tie into health is um, the weeds and things which people ate in those times were quite different to what we have available now. So the fundamental difference, and I've said in the book, as you would have noticed that the paleo diet is like a paleo fantasy. We wish we could be a paleo diet, but we're not because they had a weed called purslane, which was always a pigweed, I think it was called, it was all over the world. It was very high omega-3. And they, of course, ate a lot of marine, um, I, um, you know, seafood, fish especially. So so if you look at our diets, they were not only the more processed, but even our salads and things, we don't have high enough omega-3 um, the ratio to our omega-6. So ancient man, for example, had an omega-3 to omega-6 ratio we know from studying fossils of 1 is to 1, so it was almost the same. We know that in p places where we have you know, more olive oil or sunflower oil and things like that now, our omega-6 to omega-3 ratio is something like more than 10 to 1 times. So what we know is inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, we know are increased if our ratio is more than three is to one. We know breast cancer goes up and it's something like five to one. We know heart disease goes up. So all the things we're seeing an increase of to a large degree is also exacerbated by the fact that we eat too little omega-3 and too much omega. So even our healthy fats are omega-6. So we should be having much more omega-3. And we don't have a lot of those plants available anymore because we've populated every corner of the earth and we've destroyed a lot of our natural habitat. So we're just overpopulated. So therefore, we cannot, even if we make the best effort, actually have a true paleo diet, but we could come, you know, relatively close, but not very. Okay, very good. Well, uh, I'd like to actually continue talking about the sun and, and vitamin D and also how that plays into skin cancer. And we can, of course, go back uh, to the diet, but I, I find it very interesting um, how you talked about, okay, we human evolution uh, came from darker skin where it was protected, uh, where we were being protected from the sun in Africa. And then, of course, people who migrated to different places, their their skin became lighter so that we could absorb uh, more of this vitamin D. I, I think it would be important if you could stress the role of vitamin D and how uh, how much people should be getting and how that also depends on, on people's, uh, on the tone of people's skin. So a, you know, uh, a black person living in Maine may have really great difficulty, uh, and a white person living in Miami, for example, well, might just want to look out if you, uh, if you might have Irish descent or something like that. Um, could you talk a little, uh, a little bit about the importance just so people really understand? 
Yeah. So yeah, this is actually one of my main areas of research for a, a previous book, which was called Skin Biography. And actually, it's uh, very interesting to me because a lot of things which we take for granted and like, you know, like Olympic track and field medals or populations can just be explained by this battle between vitamin D and folate or folic acid. So it's a good question. And let me try and simplify it. So basically, all human beings um, migrated out of Africa about roughly about 100,000 years ago. So in the scheme of things, considering that our planet's been around billions of years, we're relatively new, right? So so the second thing to remember is that in um, Africa, human beings, you know, there was a gradual process of um, evolution. And so if we go back to one of the things I found to see in my skin thing, I'm often also op- asked to operate on animals. So I work a lot with primates and things like that. And especially, you know, many primates are very um, human-like in both their emotions and how they deal with things. So one thing which struck me is that when we were shaving primates' hair to treat certain skin conditions, their skin was actually a lot pinker underneath than I would have expected. So, but what it is, because when you have fur, um, you know, you get a bit of protection, but the first thing we remember, and this is something I talk about in the book, is that the brain just evolved for movement. So one of the reasons humans have bigger brains is we're designed to move greater distances. We can run. We cover greater ground than other animals. We just, except for food, they generally live in one continent. You know, we travel all around the world now. So, so the more we moved, uh, we started walking upright, and that gave us the ability to see into the distance, walk greater distances. So we developed larger brains, but the brain is nothing but a computer. So often I work in multidisciplinary teams with, you know, the computer guys who purely look at the brain as a computer. And they're always interested in downloading stuff and looking at algorithms non-medically. So if you look at the brain as a computer, then the computers need a cooling system. So we actually lost fur and we just retained hair because we know that hair helps us to, um, you know, detect insects on our body. So. So what happened is in Africa, this process was very slow. It took 28 million years before we shed our fur and sort of became a primitive humans, and then we became the more modern humans. So therefore, evolution, the beauty of science and adaptation is that over these 28 million years, we developed a high pre-vitamin D level. So those people in Africa naturally have some pre-vitamin D levels, which was greater than what you would expect for their skin type, which was dark. But when when they went into Northern Europe, like you said, for a Northern European, the skin needed to lighten to absorb it because those who had dark skin in Europe, they developed rickets and rickets makes you deformed and bent over and diseased, but it also makes you infertile. So you got bred out over time. But also, if you were bent and stooped and um, you you could see how the early feelings of, you know, racial superiority and things may have come about because the people who were darker skinned in Europe were actually unwell. So... Um, you know, people thought they were weaker. But as people then migrated into Asia from Europe, and this migration actually came from Europe. Um, so what, what was interesting is um, skin again darkened, but the, it darkened to preserve folic acid. And that's the reason why, like I said earlier, Asia and Africa have larger populations, larger birth rates compared to wealthy countries. So in a previous thing, we looked at research, which looked at um, like slums in Bombay or Mumbai in India versus wealthy suburbs in Belgium. And you find that even in a impoverished part of India, the 
rate of birth defects is actually lower than more wealthy places in Europe simply because fundamentally um, people have more folic acid because their skin is darker, the sun doesn't destroy folic acid. So everything is a battle between vitamin D and folic acid. So in the TED talk, I actually pre I predicted the track and field uh, medals and the Olympics based on our skin color. And it's no accident that if you look at your American football or basketball that you're overrepresented if you think about uh, by uh, African-American population simply because fundamentally the natural athletes because they have high pre-vitamin D levels. So it's the Asian populations and the Hispanics who would have an even much higher rate of getting a vitamin D deficiency um, because of their dark skin, even though I guess as generations go and you get more malnourished, anybody can develop the deficiency and it's a big problem increasingly these days. So coming back to the skin cancer thing, down under in Australia, New Zealand, we have the highest rate of skin cancer because we have high, you know, um, UV ultraviolet rays. And actually, interesting thing here as an aside is both the North Pole and the South Pole both have high UV. But in the North Pole, it's Arctic Ocean, so it absorbs a lot of it, whereas in the South, we're Antarctic and it reflects it back. So because of it, I see a lot of patients who don't go out in the sun enough because of the fact that, you know, we don't want to get skin cancers. And of course, we have a higher rate of vitamin D deficiency, including in North American descent populations. So it's really a big problem worldwide, these vitamin D levels. And while some people are more genetically susceptible to it, and we do test for that, it's really important that everybody, uh, you know, has enough vitamin D. Okay, interesting. And uh, so when I'm in, in Costa Rica, I try to start my day with a little bit of sun every single morning. I feel like it helps uh, wake up my body and it, uh, you know, I really just, I enjoy the connection, of course, with the sun. It feels good, but I also know that it's, it's waking up my body as, as they say, uh, it helps your hormones get, get rolling your, your, body throughout the day has a certain circadian rhythm, certain uh, hormones are produced at certain times of the day. And so when your body knows, oh, okay, it's, uh, it's sunny out, time to wake up, time to uh, give your body a little shot of cortisol or time to uh, produce a little collagen, these types of things I, I, I feel are very important and I know it's a great time to just step outside and have a little coffee and and get some sun it's not too hot out yet and so I'm not I'm not burning and I, I always have a good base layer of tan um, and so I, I feel really good about it just like most people wherever they live with where there are seasons and you might be able to do that in the summer or maybe in the fall you want to get a, a uh, sunshine right at noon when it's a little bit stronger. Uh, but my question for you, Dr. Paul, is when I go back to New York, uh, where my family is from, and it's the dead of winter, do you suggest uh, supplementing with vitamin D3? I know a certain amount of sunlight or uh, vitamin D rather is stored, I believe, in your fat, uh, but I don't know how long those reserves last. Do you, do you suggest as soon as you're not going to be able to get sun one day, start popping vitamin D? How, how would you go about that? All right. So the first thing is uh, what we found with regard to supplements is in everything, the more natural forms, the better. So, so the question is, um, are you vegetarian or not would be the first question. So if you were vegetarian, then I would say, yes, you probably 
maybe uh, it may be beneficial. Obviously, I would normally test. See, this is why uh, personalized gene testing, which we do sometimes is helpful because some people may fundamentally not have a problem just because of a genetic uh, predisposition that you actually may have enough uh, vitamin D. But if you have a predisposition to be low or your blood level is dropping, um, then yes, definitely you must supplement. But if you said you weren't testing at all and you weren't a vegetarian, then say if you were eating food like salmon or cod or something like that, they have very high levels of um, vitamin D anyway, so you wouldn't need to supplement. So give you an example, salmon and cod oils on those in the fish when you eat them has something like 1,200 international units of vitamin D per um, tablespoon or teaspoon. They're very large quantities, so as much as you'd get from supplements. So, so if you weren't vegetarian and you were eating fish, especially salmon and cod, you'd be fine. And you mentioned the fat, and that's actually a, a, a side I mentioned in the book is when so if you look at when humans migrated into Europe, along with them, some animals also migrated, including the bears. And so when so the bears, which were brown bears, ended up the polar bears. But when you look at the polar bears, you know, they've got white fur. But if you shave a polar bear's fur, the skin is actually black. I'm sure you already knew that bit of uh, useless bit of information. But the thing is, what happens is the reason for that is the Inuit, um, the Eskimo people who lived up, there also have dark skin where surrounding it, North American, um, sorry, North European descent like yourself, you guys all had lighter skin. And why was that? And that was because the Inuit and the Eskimos up there, they ate fundamentally a lot of salmon. So basically they were getting so much vitamin D, just like the polar bears, that they didn't need to uh, lighten their skin. So their skin stayed darker. But that's the reason also there were fundamentally little fatter you know it's like they were fat but healthy because they had that kind of fat which also they stored their uh, vitamin d in so so in actual fact um you're right it's very important so if you're a vegetarian then because there is no really good vegetable source for vitamin d there is for omega-3 but not vitamin d which means you know unless you are getting some norwegian lichen or something you'd find it difficult so you'd have to eat some fish but if you were a fish eater then i would say Salmon and cod would be the best to um, fish for your vitamin D. Wow. Okay. That's that's fascinating about the uh, the dark skin the dark skin of the polar bear. Uh, I actually did not Sorry. know that. That's that right. That's a good. I would trick kids with that question. I say, what color is the skin of the polar bear? Of course, everybody would say white, and then you say, well, you sh when I work with the animals and things, and you shave them, and you show them as jet black because of the same fact. That's the same reason because they were already eating. If you see a polar bear, virtually they're always standing and trying to grab some salmon. <laughs> so they eat virtually exclusively vitamin D that they don't need to lighten their skin. Wow, that, that's really interesting. And, and I know that one way that people, so I'm not a vegetarian. Uh, I actually eat tremendous amounts of fish, uh, mostly stuff like wild-caught salmon from Alaska when I have access to so, it. So you'd be fine. Then you, if you were eating salmon and cod regularly, um, so, you know, I eat fish and I try and get salmon because we don't get, in Southern Hemisphere, don't get um, cod and basically twice a week. And then you'd find you get all the vitamin D you need. 
so but if not if you weren't a fish eater and that's when you'd have to think about how am i going to get my vitamin d from huh okay and, and when you know and when i don't have the the sardines around or the the anchovies around and i choose these of course because they're very low in in the toxic metals uh in the heavy metals uh they say uh, I've heard that if you have enough omega three, you actually—it's almost like a sunscreen, uh, a, a way to kind of cheat sunscreen. You don't have to wear as much sunscreen. You're able to develop a resistance to the sun. Could you help me connect the dots on that? Is that true? Not directly. So basically, I think. First thing, omega-3 is slightly different because other fish, all fish have omega-3, but also you also get omega-3 from other vegetable sources like, you know, flaxseed oil and walnuts and things like that also have omega-3, whereas um, vitamin D is slightly different. So what we must look at is omega-3 is almost like an optimizer of um, vitamin D. It's not quite the same. But what is vitamin D fundamentally is vitamin D is actually a calcium regulator. So now, so here's what's interesting is, um, so when we research creatures who live underwater who are not exposed to um, sunlight, they still have vitamin D receptors. And this is something I found interesting. And what we found is that these creatures needed calcium regulator. The reason is seawater has 20 times the calcium as fresh water. So if creatures, you know, uh, life forms come from water, that's why when we go to Mars and we're sending our, you know, space missions, the first thing we're looking for is water because that means there is life or could be life. So if water came, you know, life came from seawater, so seawater had 20 times the calcium and then the next forms of life were in fresh water and then land, which had less calcium. So we needed a calcium regulator because our cells had got used to functioning with a certain level of calcium. So what happens is if you don't have enough vitamin D, that means you lack this calcium regulator and then you're eating calcium. So, for example, like in Asia and India, for example, people drink a lot of milk or they have um, eat a lot of yogurt and things like that. But often people large vegetarian diet who are vitamin D deficient. So actually that's a recipe for heart disease and including diabetes if you have low vitamin D and high calcium in your diet. So likewise, um, what vitamin D levels fundamentally indicate is they indicate a state of health. So when we deal with advanced skin cancers, we often find the vitamin D levels are lower. But that's not actually because the low vitamin D is making them get their skin cancer. It's actually because um, the low vitamin D is indicating a not so good state of health. So it's a similar thing with omega-3 in the sense omega-3 is not vitamin D, but it is helps optimize the circulation. And in some ways, the more omega-3 you have also is an indicator of your health. Like I said earlier, primitive man was much healthier without all these um, processed foods and a lot of other health care available. They were still quite healthy. And what you found is that um, they had an omega-6 to omega-3 ratio of very close to one. And, you know, the, the biggest advances we've made in longevity in the previous year have really come from things like, you know, sanitation, um, you know, clean water, things like that. So if you took those diseases aside, you know, primitive man was pretty healthy. 
Okay, very, very interesting. Uh, to zoom out a little bit for, for the audience, Dr. Paul, if someone there, our listener, is thinking, okay, I want to be healthy from the inside, that will help me prevent, uh, of course, disease, but just optimize my overall health. And a great byproduct of that would be looking nice, looking healthy, having beautiful skin. What would you tell them? What kind of advice would you, would you give the listener? Yeah, so, so the first, uh, the three parts, I think for, we can divide into eat, move, and live. So the first thing about eating is, like we said, you know, bringing your omega-3 ratio up is very important um, and avoiding processed food and avoiding refined sugar. So because, you know, we consume far too much sugar, far too much salt because the processed food, salt is a preservative. So, you know, uh, we have, you know, you take a can of soup or packaged soup would have, you know, 800 grams or something. If you look at ancient man, you got away with like, uh, you know, less than a tenth of it. So, so fundamentally, cut down salt and sugar, eat more omega-3 oil, avoid processed food as much as possible. And so that's the basic thing about eating. Then moving, like I said, movement is very important, especially, you know, some form of endurance exercise B. And then it depends on your physique or what you're genetically attuned to. So it could be running, it could be swimming, it could be if you wanted to use equipment, it could be cycling, it could be. But movement is very important and flexibility. So, you know, what we know is, uh, uh, so the third one is, like I said, eat more, live. And the other thing is it's important to live life. So we know that from a point of view of, like you earlier mentioned, Alzheimer's and uh, other forms of dementia, so we know that both for um, Parkinson's, for example, which you mentioned, we know that like dances like the tango and things like that are very beneficial simply because you have a partner, so the social interaction. So living life, interacting with other people and being positive, positivity, we know that stress is a big part. So if you're a stressed individual, you're secreting all these, uh, you know, cortisol, uh, noradrenaline, adrenaline, because you're constantly in a state of anxiety, and what you find is because of it, you secrete chemicals which have, you know, negative effects on the rest of your health. So other thing is, you know, be positive, look on the bright side, make friends, you know, you need to live life as well, not just exist. I think there would be the three simple things without taking any medication would be the three basic things you need to do. Excellent. Excellent. And, uh, you know, if, if people probably come to you all the time and talk about things uh, to do with the anti-aging where they're really thinking about, oh, my fine lines and my wrinkles and my uh, crow's feet and these things, of course, probably are, are due to stress and furrowing their brow and, and getting all uh, bent out of shape. I know when I, you know, when I get stressed, I have certain facial, uh, facial movements, I, I guess you would call them. I say, oh God, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to uh, stay this, this way too long because my face might stay like that. Uh, that's not a nice way. I'd much rather be smiling and uh, maybe develop some lines from that, but I would, I would love that. Uh, is is that what you're talking about when it comes to stress? Uh, obviously, there's lots of things going on internally That's right. as well. That's right. There are a lot of things goes on internally. And we do know that, for example, my recent research, I was just speaking at a conference last week where we know that under each wrinkle, um, say about 
thousand microns, which is about a millimeter below each new wrinkle, you get lies a lymphatic vessel. So there is some kind of lymphangiogenesis going on. So in other words, you know, we know that if people have more wrinkles around their ear lobe area, you know, the sides of your cheek, you'd end up, it can be an indicator of a higher risk of heart disease or something is going on. So in scanning skin and assessing wrinkles, and I've got a machine, it's like a fluorescent spectroscope, it sort of bounces light off your face and we can look at not only the wrinkles you have, but the wrinkles you're going to get. And we know that wrinkles in certain areas are an indicator of um, heart disease, for example, and other things going on. But if you ask me specifically, you know, we make serums and things for skincare and often you'd see vitamin C serums. So, but what we know is eating it in a natural form is of course the best. So the other tip for your skin specifically would be eat plenty of, you know, citrus fruit, you know, things like peppers, capsicum are very high vitamin C, oranges, of course, and things like that. But the lesser known ones are things like peppers. And the more of them you have, the better for your skin. Vitamin C. Okay, excellent. Uh, are you a fan of uh, collagen? Not from a, a point of view of, uh, you know, I tend to try and um, not make a lot of processed things like processed food and including processing people. So I try to <laughs> deal with cancers when I have to, but I don't, I'm not into injectables and things like that. But having said that, there are a lot of stuff we can put you know, natural compounds and things, which we can make, um, you know, more details as you go, you see on my website, my research is with time, a lot of these things will help your collagen and help your skin and things like that. But I'm not a great fan of injectables. Ah, okay, I was just referring not to injectables, but like drinking yes. a bone broth or, or uh, you know, it's... Yeah, like a, I think if there's the less process and the most important thing is what we, we know that is for collagen and everything else is, so if you stick to what we were saying earlier, plenty of omega-3, less processed stuff. So all the stuff you're saying is not really um, processed stuff. So the more unprocessed raw stuff you eat, it is actually better for you. But it's important to be mindful that you're not, you know, consuming too much sugar or uh, too much salt. Okay, very good. Very good. Now, those are those are two very basic things that are, are uh, extremely important to keep in mind. If someone was going out in the sun, as I mentioned, I live in Costa Rica. I uh, am the co-founder of a travel company and we bring people to uh, places where the sun is a lot more intense than, than where they are used to. And uh, we're, always stressor yes, we're always stressing cover up uh, because that's uh, probably the very best thing that you can do to protect yourself from the sun. But do you have any, any tips or what to look for in a sunscreen or anything like that? Yeah. So the first thing is that um, the best with regard to vitamin D absorption, it sort of saturates at about 20 minutes of peak sun exposure. So what it means is that if you were in the sun for say about just under half an hour and you, you've got all the vitamin D you can at that time. And if you then keep sitting out in harsh sunlight, especially with this high UVA like in Southern Hemisphere, then what you'll find is that you actually can degrade some of the vitamin, the UVA can degrade some of your vitamin D you produced. So the best optimal way to get your vitamin D is in short bursts several times a day. So even if you did, you know, shorter spells, half an hour morning, afternoon, evening, compared to just trying to cook yourself every day, that's much more healthier for you. So that's the first thing. So the second thing is, you know, if you're very um, lightheaded and, you know, you were um, 
ginger redhead and then you felt um, that you you were going to be out in the sun and of course you needed some sunscreen because you're very fair skinned and couldn't tan naturally then it is a myth that you can actually more sunscreens you use and you uh, won't uh, degrade your um, vitamin D and so they don't really a, there's not a significant amount of reduction in uh, vitamin D absorption so the real reason people don't get vitamin D is A, they don't go out in the sun enough or they spend too much time in the sun where they actually literally cook themselves so they degraded the vitamin D they produced. So actually, it's better for you to have shorter bursts uh, several times a day. So in your, on your tours in Costa Rica, so if you're going on seeing things and then you're coming back and eating in the shade or mingling, doing other stuff, then you're going back out in the sun, that's actually healthy. So that I'm sure that's what you do. Yes, uh, we want to keep everybody healthy. And it, and it's funny, people feel so much better when they get a little sun, especially when it's February uh, in the northern hemisphere, and they come and they realize, oh, my God, I haven't seen the sun in so long. That's right. But there's a it, it drops off quickly, of course, until people feel horrible, as I'm sure uh, people listening have. We've all experienced a sunburn or two. Uh, so that's, yeah, th those are very good tips. Dr. Paul, I wanted to ask you, uh, well, speaking, uh, I guess, of Costa Rica, uh, some of the best coffee in the world is, is grown d down there. And I, I know that uh, you're a fan of genetic testing, of course, like you mentioned previously, yeah. so you can know how your body metabolizes caffeine. Uh, yes. And so many, so many of these studies point to, okay, there's great uh, polyphenols and uh, antioxidants for in the, in the coffee that are going to be able to keep you healthy and uh, or prevent Alzheimer's as, as we discussed. Are you a fan of decaf where you're able to still get those properties, but you're not, uh, you're not going to be all jacked up on caffeine? Yes. Yeah. I, I think fundamentally, see, Caffeine is actually good for you. Um, so, so if everybody, if you were taking it in coffee, which was you know the raw form in the old days, people just ground the coffee beans, and basically we still do it, even though sometimes we use machines. And so that way of doing it is much more healthier than say trying to get your caffeine from a processed drink like you know Coke or Red Bull or something like that. Um, now, the other thing is that. If you were genetically a slow metabolizer, like I said, you still can, you know, absolutely 200 milligrams a day, which is, so if you're having a standard Turkish coffee is 150, but if you're actually having plunger coffee, maybe 100 to 120, so you could easily have a cup of coffee a day, anybody with no problem. But if you're looking at decaf, the content of caffeine is something like 8 to 14 milligrams. So you could have, you know, you could have one coffee and you could really have two or three decafs and you're fine. So it's right. So all all these kind of darker beans, you know, the more colorful uh, vegetable is, the more polyphenols and other good things it has. So it's the same thing with, you know, you look at red potatoes are much more than white potatoes. You look at broccoli. So the more colors, turmeric. Similarly with coffee. So, yeah, I think when I think of Costa Rica, I think uh, I used to actually one day a week, I, as an aside, I teach children creative writing because, you know, I've also written other kind of novels and things, and it helps their problem solving. And actually, so for a while, we actually had a bookstore cafe which used to fund these programs. And we actually once had some Costa Rica, I think, is there a, a Tara's Zoo? I don't know how you say it, but yes. there is, a, yes, that's right, some very good beans which come from there. And 
uh, yeah so 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 i think yeah no they're actually very good for you but the thing is sometimes but the second thing to be aware of is your metabolism is not linked to the binding of caffeine and let me explain this so so for example myself personally if i have coffee after midday i'm already a person who's you know very active and i am not best sleep i can't sleep for 10 hours a day it's simply impossible so i find that if i have caffeine after say two o'clock in the afternoon i can't sleep at night whereas in the morning i'm just actually having my coffee as i'm talking to you so i'm fine but what i found what i what i thought before i researched my own genetics is that would indicate that i was one of these slow metabolizers and i should be careful of heart disease and other things but actually it's not what it is is to the binding of adenosine and adenosine the brain uses the same receptors as dopamine so really um the tighter binding you are to adenosine in the receptors the more it keeps you up and then you may be a person for decaf not because of your caffeine content but really because otherwise it may simply just keep you up but on the other hand because of this binding to adenosine what we also know is that how you drink your coffee or these can also indicate your personality so what is interesting is people who have tighter binding to adenosine also may have a little more addictive kind of personality so i know that now i'm saying that about myself so what it means is that i need to be careful so you have a higher thing of get caught up in the thing of sunny beat anything you're doing or if you were to like something you could like it too much that you could get addicted to it so you need to be a bit careful so it's funny in researching this genetics i'm now become like a psychologist looking at what people eat and predicting how their personalities are interesting could could you repeat that part about the addiction i yeah. i, I missed so, so that. basically the tighter see you have receptors in the brain for adenosine which is Uh, you know different chemical to dopamine but it's um they both use the same receptors in the brain so if you have a lot of adenosine receptors used up then you're not binding the dopamine to them so for example a lot of opiates for example or a lot of drugs will bind to dopamine because they give you that buzz and that's why people go high on uh, you know get high on drugs and that's why you get addicted to them but coffee actually binds to adenosine so it's like that gives you a bit of a buzz but it's not quite dopamine so so in other words let's say you sugar for example right sugar is addictive because sugar binds to um dopamine so so let's just say you were in a habit of drinking coke and l- l- this is an interesting one now so let's just say so you would ask yourself why would sugary drinks need caffeine um, right you may think oh no it's just to give you a bit of a buzz actually there's a bit more than that so the thing is this we know that caffeine actually dulls your sweet taste receptors So if you took caffeine and you coated your tongue with it you wouldn't be able to taste sweetness much more but you'll be able to taste other things so what it allows you to do is then you can add more sugar to the drink because you would be able to tolerate more sugar than you could normally so it's actually not just you know these wow. uh, it's quite interesting it's actually fine you know I'm not a conspiracy theorist but on the other hand it's actually very interesting how these companies have used the science in my view in a little negative way so you can add more sugar so you get hooked on it by adding caffeine so we looked at how much time because sugar binds to dopamine but coffee binds to adenosine so what's the yes. difference right so so what's the difference is this here so if you try to come off sugar and you were on a high sugar diet you would actually take 2 to 3 months and you would get the shakes and withdrawal effects and you would get low mood and depressed and you would want your coke again 
exactly like you would if you're coming off drugs. But if you're coming off coffee, it's actually shorter. So if you were a coffee, you, you had to have your coffee every day and you one day decided I'm not having coffee anymore, it would only take you seven to 12 days and you could come off cold turkey of coffee because it binds to adenosine and not dopamine. So that's sort of the way it works. Wow, but to come off sugar, it it's would probably a be a like much longer. Drugs, so it's going to be very difficult to come off cold turkey because you'll get withdrawals, lower mood, the shakes, you would feel, you know, grumpy would be you'd be craving it a lot more than coffee wow that's fascinating and, and for a lot longer you know coffee after you may crave it for the first 12 days and after that you're fine sure so if you're drinking coca-cola with both caffeine and sugar or yes. you're having a cup of coffee with both yes. caffeine and sugar Absolutely. you're really yeah. not doing yourself any favors <laughs> no. <laughs> no wow and, and that's one of the interesting things a lot of these fizzy drinks have caffeine added because of the fact. So, so what's interesting is even these artificial sugars bind to the same place. So they make you feel good by thinking, okay, I'm not getting the calories, but you're still getting the binding. So, Wow, that, that's really interesting. And yeah. uh, I was going to mention uh, one of the things that my genetic report came back with was that I was a slow metabolizer of coffee. So I know that I need to work uh, watch out, but also I didn't put it two and two together until you said this about uh, adenosine is that I had, I was less found to be genetically predisposed to sleeping less deeply. Uh, and there's some type of link there with adenosine that's right. and delta And waves. that's what I was just saying. That's right. Yeah. That's the same. It's basically the same thing. So the tighter the binding to adenosine. Um, so then if you have coffee afternoon, you're not going to sleep. So it's the same sort of stuff. So it's because that's linked to your it's really how quickly your adenosine receptors get used up means you're less likely to um, sleep as well. Wow, this is uh, this is fascinating stuff, yeah. stuff, Doctor Paul. I'm I'm sure we've made a couple people's brains hurt at this point. <laughs> That's right. But it's uh, yeah, really, really interesting and and things that people can can absolutely take away. And as we were discussing before uh, we started recording that. I really believe that people have uh, an obligation to start learning about their health and to start understanding the science because you can't just rely on the government or the healthcare system to take care of you or they're not going to teach you this stuff in schools on how to take care of yourself and your family. And, uh, you know, the, the cards are stacked against you when you have millions and millions of dollars of corporate money going into advertising so that you put sugar in your coffee and you have uh, and you you drink coca-cola so dr. Paul if we wanted to leave people just with a, an overall uh, maybe a, a bit of a synopsis on what they can learn. Of course, you have your book, The Genetics of, of Health, uh, maybe something from there or just an overarching piece of advice. Uh, if people are trying to live healthier, happier lives and go forward uh, in wellness rather than in illness, what would you say to them? Yeah, I think uh, the, the fundamental thing is the importance of movement, which is underappreciated because now with the technology, we don't move enough. So the importance of movement, like an endurance movement, like um, doing some kind of not just flexibility exercises, which are good for balance, and but also some kind of endurance exercise, cutting down processed food. And one of the messages I say in the book, as well as I've said many times in life, is 
after medicine, I studied law and philosophy and ethics are full of useless information. But one of the most important things I realized is that just like law doesn't always translate to justice because of its rules and regulations, you know, medicine won't translate into health unless you take personal responsibility. So, you know, it's a big thing about we should take personal responsibility for our own health and well-being and say, okay, now I'm going to move, I'm going to do some endurance exercise, I'm going to eat unprocessed food, and I'm going to do some good. Because we also know in the book I talk about the genes for generosity and the more giving people are, the more positive their mood and things compared to people who were more um, ungiving or ungenerous actually had poorer health outcomes. So in life, I think, you know, it's like it's important to eat, move, um, live, have fun and also give. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, again, Dr. Paul, thank you very much for, for coming on today. Your book, The Genetics of Health, uh, Understand Your Genes for Better Health. I, I highly recommend people go and, and dive in and uh, get their genetics tested either through you and and uh, your website uh, and, and pick up a copy of the book. Dr. Paul, where can people find out more about you or, or go and make a purchase? Yeah, they can just do sharadpaul.com, S-H-A-R-A-D, paul.com. Um, or, and they can order the books there. They can order the gene test there. Or the book is available all over the world on Amazon, all the usual outlets, stores and things. Yeah, no, it's a real pleasure, Matt. And, you know, keep up the good work and it's all excellent. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed that past episode. If you are looking to put these things into practice, I invite you to come next July to Peru and Machu Picchu with me and my girlfriend, Luz Garcia, a 1,500-hour registered yoga teacher for an amazing retreat that we are putting on. If you would like more information, Check out under30experiences.com and find Yoga and Peru. Uh, we would love to connect with you further. We have some amazing community events coming up on under30experiences.com. And no, uh, you don't just have to be under 30 years of age. We are an inclusive community rather than an exclusive co community. And finally, if you are on the same mission as I am, I would love if you shared this episode with a friend, a friend who needs it. If you can support uh, this podcast, that would mean a whole lot to me. Share it, subscribe, leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I would love if you even did it just a little justice and give it a like on our new YouTube channel. Those type of things go a long way in helping other people find great content that is going to help them live happier, healthier lives. So thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. If you'd like to connect with me, feel free to email me. Give me some feedback, matt at under30experiences.com or hit me up on social media, Matt Wilson TV on just about any social platform. Talk to you guys soon.